This morning we begin a new four-part sermon series simply entitled, Once Upon a Time, The Beginning of the Four Gospels. Every great story has a great beginning. And by mere observation, we can conclude that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have a different launching point. It is Mark who begins his gospel with the public ministry of Jesus. It is Luke who goes back about 30 years earlier and begins his gospel track by interweaving the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. Matthew goes back about 2,000 years before the coming of Christ and he links the line and lineage of Jesus all the way back to Father Abraham. John, he goes back to the very foundation of creation with those powerful words in the beginning. All four gospel writers have a different starting point. And I think they do this on purpose because each gospel writer has something specific to tell us about Jesus. This morning, I want to begin with the most unconventional Christmas story. It's found in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word as this morning we consider Mark's Christmas story. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the days that followed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Romans continued to rule the land. In 49 AD, Claudius, the emperor of Rome, issued a decree evicting all of the Jews and Christians living in the ancient city of Rome. Five years later, in 54 AD, Claudius died, and so did his decree. His son, Nero, assumed the throne. And for the first several years, Nero proved to be a better Caesar than his old man. For starters, he invited the Christians and the Jews to return to the great city of Rome. For the first few years under Nero's reign, there were periods of peace and pockets of prosperity. 
about 10 years into his reign, around 64 AD, Nero wanted to build himself a bigger palace. Now this idea of building a bigger palace was met with some resistance by his critics. Coincidentally, in that very same year of 64 AD, a fire nearly destroyed all of Rome. Now word on the street was that Nero had ordered the fire. Why? Because he was sulking, because he could not get his bigger palace. When the rumors began to intensify that it was really Nero who was the one responsible for the fire, Nero needed a scapegoat. So he turned to the Christians. He said, the Christians are the ones who are responsible for the fire. After all, they are anti-culture. They are anti-government. They are anti-Caesar. They are anti-Roman Empire. They're the ones who have started this fire. That sparked a persecution against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ that church historians tell us was one of the most ferocious persecutions known to man. All of this power went to Nero's head. Apparently, he became one of the most vicious dictators the world has ever seen. Under his rule and reign, persecution broke out. It targeted Christians. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ, Christians were targeted under heavy taxation. They lost their jobs. Their property was confiscated. Even their lives were taken from them. Under Nero's persecution, Christians were kidnapped under the cover of night. Many of them thrown into the Colosseum to wage war against the wild animals and the gladiators. And more than a few Christians were speared alive, set ablaze to illuminate Nero's gardens at night, all to serve as a spectacle of what would happen if you refuse to say Caesar is Lord and if you're adamant that Jesus is Lord. All this persecution broke out simply because of faith in Christ. I probably don't have to tell you that this calls more than a few Christians to be willing to recant to denounce their faith in Jesus Christ, to throw in the towel, to turn their back, to walk away, to say, this is not what I signed up for. I wonder, beloved, how tough would life have to get for you to recant your faith in Christ? How dangerous would life have to be for you? How much pressure would have to be uh, nudged and forced upon you for you to turn your back on the Lord? What if there came a day when our government targeted you for heavy taxation just because you call yourself Christian? What if your faith in Jesus Christ landed uh, you in the unemployment line? What if some of your property was confiscated? What if some of your loved ones were kidnapped and crucified and executed just because of explicit faith in Jesus Christ? Can you fathom any scenario that would prompt you and urge you to turn your back on the Lord? As I stop and think about this, there are moments that I give those early Christians a break. I think to myself, if I had to endure what they endured, would I be willing to stand up for the Lord? It was about this same time that the Spirit of God prompted the man named Mark to write his gospel track. Elsewhere, the scripture calls this man John Mark. He was a cousin of Barnabas. He was the travel companion of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. 
Church historians tell us that this was the first of the four Gospels to be written. Mark wrote his Gospel in the mid-60s of the first century. His original audience were Christians living in and around Rome, suffering under enormous persecution. His purpose was to remind them of Jesus. Because Mark operated under the assumption that if you remember who Jesus is, and if you know what Jesus has done for you, then you will cling to Christ at all times and above all things. If you really know who Jesus is, if you know his identity, if you remember his activity, if you know that he was the one who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart, then you, my friend, if you recall and remember who Jesus is and what he endured on a gruesome cross at Calvary's Hill, if you remember what Jesus went through for your salvation, then you will be willing to live for the one who died for you. I wonder, is there anything that would keep you from Christ and his church. When you begin to frame it under the understanding and remembrance of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, the reality ought to be that there is nothing in this world that could keep me from Christ. There is nothing in this world that could keep me from his bride, the church. In fact, when you begin to contemplate, when you begin to realize all that Jesus has done for you, and when you realize and remember who he truly is, then the U.S. military should not even be able to keep you from this church, even if they barricaded the premises. Why? Because we are Jesus people, and we know who Jesus is, and we never forget what Jesus has done. Our persecuted brothers and sisters today Tell the American church, please don't ever pray that persecution stops. Because our persecuted brothers and sisters will say, if persecution stops, then we'll become just like you in the American church. Where you freely give up your rights that we die for. In the American culture, in the American church, we willingly give up our right to go to church and to stand up for Christ. Why? Because we give up in our freedom what the persecuted church dies for. Sometimes people don't come to church simply because their favorite team on Saturday lost the game. Sometimes people don't come to church because there's a handful of dark clouds in the sky that may produce a few raindrops along the way. Some people don't come to church simply because they just don't feel like it today. And oh my friend, I wonder, is there anything that would keep you from Christ and his church? If, you think, if you're thinking to yourself, now pastor, are you really saying that if I'm gonna be a Christian, I've gotta go to church? No, I'm not saying that, but let's be very clear. What I am saying is that if you are a Christian, I cannot fathom why you wouldn't wanna go to church. Is there anything that would keep you from Christ and his church? Oh, it's the spirit of God that prompts this man named Mark to write this gospel track to a bunch of Christians that are struggling under the heavy hand of Roman persecution in the mid-60s of the first century. And Mark is telling them, if you recall, if you remember who Jesus is, you will cling to him at all times. So the opening line 
is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. This word gospel, you know, it means good news. It's joyous tidings. It's not original with Mark. The word gospel, euangelion, had been around for eons. In the Jewish mindset, the gospel was always tied to the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. In Jewish thought, whenever Messiah comes, that will be gospel. That will be good news. Mark is saying the good news has now come. Even in Gentile thought, there was a correlation with good news and the arrival of a king. Even the pagans believed that the king was appointed by the decree of the gods. And so there are numerous inscriptions of antiquity where it speaks of the gospel or the birth of a particular Caesar or king. What is Mark doing? Mark is telling the original audience, hey, I am speaking about the birth of not just any king, but the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is the king who's greater than any Caesar. He is the king who has more power than anyone else. He is the king who has more authority than any ruler on the planet. This is King Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. He gives him two titles, Christ and Son of God. Now, we've studied the Gospel of Mark exhaustively. And so some of this, much of this, may sound quite familiar to you because you remember that as we walked through methodically the Gospel of Mark, we concluded that Mark arranged his Gospel around two confessions. The first confession comes in chapter 8. The second confession comes in chapter 15. In chapter 8, it's the confession found on the lips of Peter, the ringleader, the Jewish uh, uh, instigator of, of of the group of disciples. The second confession comes on the lips of the anonymous Roman centurion who's standing at the foot of the cross in Mark chapter 15. The first confession, Jesus and the boys are in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others say another prophet reincarnated. And Jesus pointedly asks them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter, according to Mark, who simply declares, you are Christ. You are anointed one. You are Messiah. You are king of all kings. This announcement was given by the Jewish leader, Peter. But at the end of Mark's gospel, it's the Gentile, maybe even a pagan, who watches how Jesus died. How he conducted himself, how he died, calling the shots. It's the Roman centurion in Mark chapter 15 who looks up and says, surely this man is son of God. At the very opening line of Mark's gospel, he's saying, I am speaking to you about the identity of Jesus. He is Christ. He is son of God. He is proclaimed by Jew and Gentile. He is the sovereign savior for all mankind. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ son of God if you know who Jesus is you'll cling to him when life is chaotic if you know who Jesus is you will cling to him when life turns upside down if you know who Jesus is you will reach and cling for him when persecution breaks out against you and your loved ones this is the gospel of Jesus he is Christ son of God Now, Mark doesn't begin in a Bethlehem stable, 
Mark does not trace the line and lineage of Jesus back to Father Abraham. Mark does plant his thoughts in Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah and Malachi. He speaks of the one who would be the forerunner, the the one who would come ahead of Messiah. He speaks of one who would come to make clear paths for Jesus. Now, why does Mark talk like this? Well, remember his audience. His audience are citizens of the capital city of the Roman Empire. They know pomp and circumstance. They know the rules and regulations of royalty. Whenever any person of nobility would come into Rome, there was always an entourage. There were always those that were come sent ahead of them to perhaps build a bridge or uh, to remove obstacles or to help rough places become smooth so that the one of nobility would arrive safe and sound. It is this mentality that Mark taps into when he's speaking to uh, Roman Christians, Christians living in and around Rome. He's reminding them of royalty, that Jesus is the royal king of all kings. Every culture has pomp and circumstance. Every culture has certain rules and regulations so that its leader will always be safe. This really hit home to me four years ago when I went to Washington, D.C. I went with Nathan, our son. At that time, he was in fifth grade. So I went on the fifth grade tour of Washington, D.C., As a history major in college, I was loving it. I was eating it up. I was the first one in the museum. I was the last one out. I was supposed to be watching the kids. I was not watching the kids. I was looking around at everything. I was the one who had all the questions. I was the one that was raising my hand. I was the one that was engaging the tour guide in conversation. On one particular evening and night, we were touring... um, the Jefferson Memorial and and all the Lincoln Memorial and all those places in Washington, D.C., right at the heart of the city. And I couldn't help but notice that on more than one occasion, three helicopters would pass over at random times and in random ways. And I asked the tour guide, I said, what's up with that? And he said, well, uh, that could just be a test run because the Air Force base is not very far from the capital city. He said, or uh, one of those could be bringing back the President of the United States. You may realize that uh, those three helicopters, they always fly in a formation of three. And if the President is aboard, the one in which he's aboard is called Marine One. All three of them are are, uh, the same type of helicopters. If it really does have the President, The three of them will fly over the White House, and only the one with the president will drop down. The other two will peel off. But the military will run these uh, races, run, run these runs periodically, not at the same time, not in the same way, as so no one could determine a particular pattern. And I thought to myself, why do we do all this? The answer, to keep the president of the United States safe. Listen. Whether you like the particular person, whether you agree or disagree with the person in the office, as a citizen of the United States of America, we respect the office of president. Because we know 
that that is our leader. And so there's certain rules, there's certain regulations to help him arrive safely wherever he is supposed to go. This is what Mark has in mind because Mark says, I know that you people living in Rome, you understand pomp and circumstance. You understand how to maneuver royalty and dignity that whenever somebody of nobility comes into the city, there's always a forerunner, there's always an entourage. And so Mark identifies this one as John the baptizer. We call him John the Baptist. No, he wasn't the first Southern Baptist. (laughs) We just acknowledge him because he is the John who baptized a bunch of people. Mark could have told us numerous stories about John. He could have uh, told us about John's miraculous birth. I think all of us would have to call it miraculous. His mother and father, Zachariah and Elizabeth, were well beyond childbearing years. Mark could have told us the story about John's anointing, that his anointing was even embryonic, that he would flip and flop in the embryonic fluid of his mother's womb. For the story is told in Luke's gospel that when Mary comes to her cousin's house, Elizabeth, and Mary says, Inside of me is the chosen Messiah that John tells us, or Luke tells us that, uh, that John began to leap for joy in Elizabeth's womb. That even before he was born, he seemed to be anointed for the mission and ministry of being a forerunner to Christ. Oh, Mark could have told us those stories. He could have made mention that John the baptizer was the last of the prophets that he broke the 400-year godly gag order. For 400 years there had been divine silence. No one stood up to say, thus saith the Lord, until John jumps onto the scene. Oh, Mark could have used any of those stories, but he doesn't tell us much of that at all. He just simply tells us about the wardrobe and the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came wearing Camel's hair. Sounds itchy to me, doesn't it? He wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locust and wild honey. Those seem like throwaway comments until it dawns on you that what Mark is telling us is that John is a prophet. In fact, he he looks and he dresses, he eats, and he sounds like Elijah. Because John looks like a prophet and talks like a prophet and acts like a prophet. And uh, he preaches like a prophet. In fact, when John the baptizer comes, he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside turns out. All of Jerusalem comes to hear. Because John is not preaching rules and regulations. He's not declaring another religion. He is declaring repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That the only way for you to um, be ready for this coming king, the only way for you to receive this Christ, Son of God, is through repentance for the forgiveness of sin. What's true in that day is still true today. The only way for us to receive King Jesus is by repenting of our sin. Oh, the word repentance, it, it does mean to turn around. Literally, it means to change the mind. That repentance for the forgiveness of sin implies 
trusting and turning. Trusting that Jesus is Savior and turning from sin. You can't trust without turn and you can't have turning without trusting. You cannot say, I trust Jesus, but I refuse to turn from my sin. Nor can you say, I'm going to turn from my sin without trusting Jesus as Savior. There are two sides of the same coin. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, then inevitably you have to turn from your sin. And John came preaching this message in order for you to prepare for the coming of the Christ Son of God, you must repent from your sins. It would seem to me that John's message was in present tense, which implies a continuous action. It's not just that we repent once, but even after we are forgiven of sin from God, that, that, that even in days and months and years later, we, we still repent to the point that I ask you this morning, is there any sin that you need to repent of today? Is there anything that you need to change your mind about? Is there anything that you need to uh, confess and, and trust and turn from? Is there anything? Is it, is it lying? Is it lust? Is it, is it greed? Is it gossip? Is it slander? Is it anger? Resentment? Jealousy? What is Is there anything that you need to confess unto the Lord? Because a broken and contrite heart, oh God, he will not despise. You come to God broken and contrite, I promise you, he'll receive you unto himself. This is the message of John the Baptist. It was symbolized by baptism. Once again, John is not the originator of baptism. Even in Judaism, there are certain ceremonial washings. Then in those days, even when an adult Gentile came to Judaism, that Gentile was baptized. And if we saw it, we would think to ourselves, that's baptism by immersion. That person would be baptized. Because in those days, baptism symbolized the breaking from the old and allegiance to the new. This is what John preached. John preached a message that was a breaking from the old and allegiance to the new. That when King Jesus comes... You must break from the old self and you must declare your allegiance to Christ and him crucified. He is the king of all kings. He is the Christ, the son of God. The only way you get to him is by repentance. And that repentance signifies you're saying goodbye to the old self and hello to new allegiance unto Jesus. For he is sovereign in your life. This is the message that John preached. In verse 5, the whole Judean countryside turns out. In verse 9, so does Jesus. Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin John. Now why? Why does Jesus come to be baptized? I mean, if this baptism is symbolic of the forgiveness of sins, Jesus has no sin to forgive. He never did anything wrong. So why does Jesus come at the beginning of his ministry into the waters of baptism? And I think the answer is twofold. I think for starters, I think that Jesus is identifying himself with sinners. Jesus is the one that comes for the many. We, we acknowledge this in his death, that, that the one God-man Jesus died for the many sinners, you and me. 
And this one for many is not just in the death of Jesus, but also in the baptism of Jesus. That Jesus comes to identify himself. He's not a sinner, but he comes to identify with sinners. He is not guilty, but he came to identify with the guilty. He's not needy, but he comes to identify with the needy. And so he comes. You can understand and hear the trepidation in John's voice when he will say, I'm not worthy to baptize you. In fact, he earlier said, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. My water is just symbolic of cleansing, but he can baptize you thoroughly so that you're cleansed from the inside out. When Jesus comes to the banks of the Jordan River, it is John who says, why are you coming to me? You don't need this. But Jesus, by his actions, he's identifying with us. And we really do need it. We need to be forgiven of sin. We need to acknowledge our guilt before God. We need to declare that we are needy. And the only one who can meet our needs is God Almighty. So Jesus comes to identify. But I think there's a second reason. The second reason is because this is a great time for a divine selfie. And God takes a snapshot of his sovereign self. At the baptism of Jesus, you see the Trinity. Look, I, I know the word Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible, not from Genesis to Revelation. But there are certain places where you see a divine selfie, where God takes a picture of himself. And when God takes a picture of himself, you see himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's what we have right here in Mark chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus. You hear the voice of God Almighty. You are my son, with you I am well pleased. Quotations of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. God is just repeating himself. The father is saying to the son, I am pleased with you. You hear the voice of God the father. You see the baptism of God the son. Which, by the way, Jesus comes up out of the water. That's why we go down into the water. That's why we say it's baptism by immersion. That we get completely and totally wet. For to, to baptize means to immerse. When Jesus comes up out of the water, we see the, the, the Son of God. And then we are told about God the Spirit. Rips open the heavens, descends upon Jesus like a dove. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. I think Jesus was baptized to, yes, identify with us as sinners, but also to give God an opportunity just to do a divine selfie, to make an Instagram post in a story, to tell us who he is and why he has come. This same spirit that descended upon Jesus now throws him into the wilderness. Your translation may not say throw, but that's what the Greek word is. It means to throw. It means to thrust. There is a violent action to it that the Spirit of God cast Jesus into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of refining. It's a place of testing. Once again, Jesus didn't need to be refined. How do you refine perfection? But Jesus is identifying with us. Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. The children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was there for 40 days. Mark is very concise. 
he gives us the cliff note version of the temptations of Jesus. He doesn't tell us anything about the nature of those temptations. He doesn't speak a word about how Jesus overcomes the temptations through the power of the word of God. Mark doesn't tell us any of that. He gives us no detail that Luke gives us and Matthew gives us. Mark just simply says that he was in the desert being tempted by Satan. The one little caveat that Mark does give is that he leaves the door open for future temptations. It's not that Jesus just faced temptation once, crossed off the list, never to be tempted again. No, this was the beginning point of a three-year onslaught of temptation. Because maybe you could testify that temptation is real and it's repetitive. Can I get an amen? You knock it out once, but it's going to rear its ugly head again. Just because you're victorious today is no guarantee you'll be victorious tomorrow. Just because you're victorious over temptation yesterday is no guarantee you'll be victorious over the same temptation tomorrow. Because temptation is real and it is repetitive. It is frequent and it is ferocious. The only thing that Mark does tell us is that Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. A lot of ink has been spilled trying to describe and define what Mark meant by wild animals. What does it mean that Jesus was with wild animals? Well, suffice it to say this. When the original audience read that Jesus was with wild animals, I can promise you their minds went to the Colosseum. When they heard the phrase wild animals, they remembered that their loved ones, their friends, their family, they've been kidnapped, thrown into the Roman Colosseum to face the wild animals. Do you know how many people survived the wild animals? None. Nobody. You know how many people survived the gladiators? None. Nobody survived. They would go in there for their own death and their own demise. Nobody survived being with the wild animals. But Mark tells us Jesus survives being with the wild animals. Because your, your temptation is as ferocious as a wild animal. It is as frequent, real, and repetitive as the temptation of Jesus. And Jesus is victorious. And if Jesus is victorious over temptation, you can be victorious over temptation. Hear what Mark is saying to the original audience. When he says that Jesus faced and conquered the wild animals, he is saying that those who follow Jesus can also be victorious. Because God did not leave Jesus alone in the desert, for the angels attended him. And just as God the Father did not leave God the Son alone in the desert, so God will not leave you alone in your temptation, in your suffering, in your refinement, in your periods of testing, you will not be left alone. You may feel like you're by yourself, but you're never alone because the angels attended him and the angels will attend them, you and me. Oh, Mark has a very uncanny, unorthodox Christmas story. But it's a Christmas story nonetheless. Because he's telling us the good news of the arrival of the king. His name is Jesus. 
He is Christ and Son of God. The way you receive him is through repentance. And what he demands of you is relentless obedience, even when you're in the wilderness, even when you're being attacked by the wild animals. Christmas is a time of getting gifts, right? We give some gifts, but more times than not, we like the gifts we receive. Think about what Mark is saying. Mark is saying at Christmas, God has given you the gift of Jesus. He is the king of all kings. He is Christ, son of God. You receive him by repentance of sin. And he requires relentless obedience. And he will give you power even as you face the wild animals of temptation in your wilderness. What a mighty gift. What Mark is reminding the Christians in the 60s of the first century, I remind you in the 21st century, we have the gift of Jesus. And when you remember who Jesus is, and if you remember what he's done for you, you will cling to him at all times and above all things. Don't ever forget who Jesus is. Don't ever forget what he did for you at Calvary's cross and through the empty tomb of Easter Sunday morning. Don't ever forget the glorious gospel story because that gospel will get you through some stuff. That gospel will help you cling to Christ in the midst of chaos. That gospel will help you stay intact when you feel like life around you is falling apart. When persecution comes, when situations come, when sickness arrives on your doorstep, you cling to the gospel and that gospel gospel will strengthen you and help you for greater is he in you than he who's in the world so mark tells the church in the first century what i tell you today just follow christ follow this king from the cradle to the cross follow him from trouble to triumph follow him in sickness and success. Follow him. Because if you know who Jesus is, you will live for the one who died for you. So don't let anything ever prompt you, nudge you, or urge you to recant your faith in Christ or denounce your allegiance to the Lord. Why? He's Christ. He's Son of God. He is the sovereign Savior of Jew and Gentile. The way you come to him is by repentance of sin. And he, he demands relentless obedience that he gives you the power to do. So you are never alone. Come follow the one who came to pursue you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. There may be somebody here who needs to trust you as Savior and Lord. Let today be the day of salvation. There may be somebody here who simply needs to confess sin and repent. There may be somebody here who knows what it is to be in the wilderness. A person knows what it is to be faced by the wild animals of temptation. Lord, you are victorious. Help us to be victorious. Thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.